This is the Midwest Academy LeaderCast, a leadership development podcast, episode three with Dan Pauley. Dan's our guest today. He's got a background in the military, law enforcement, and is a private military contractor. He's been a lifetime martial artist. He's a published author, adventurer, artist, teacher, and as those of us who know him, refer to him as quite possibly the most interesting man in the world. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, uh, Dan Pauley. I was, uh, I started probably my small arms training in the U.S. Army. I served in the U.S. Army Reserve. I was a medic in the 12th SF group out of uh, Chicago. I, uh, I've worked for three different police departments, suburban, urban, and uh, very rural. I've done um, all kinds of uh, military and uh, uh, private contracting, private security contracting, uh, all around, and a lot of teaching. I started uh, unarmed Asian martial arts in the summer of 1972. I've got uh, teaching credentials in um, ooh, a couple martial arts and a couple honorary ones. And uh, so I've been doing it close to almost 50 consecutive years. One thing I want to tell anybody who's listening, Dan's joining us via cell phone right now. This is being recorded during the corona pandemic, so we can't have Dan in the studio with us today. Dan's also living out in the Four Corners region of Colorado, so if there's any issues with the sound qualities, that's some of the stuff that we're dealing with. Um, Dan, you and I met back in about the mid-80s, in the martial arts, you've been super inspirational to me and so many other people, and not just in the martial arts, but, you know, as the, most people that know me know, uh, I was in the military as well and law enforcement as well. So we've had that common background between martial arts training and firearms training, and you know that we've been working on a project at the academy up here for about a decade really kind of focusing on shooting as a martial art. And I was wondering if we could get some of your thoughts and insights into into that. I mean, is shooting a martial art? Well, I, uh, uh, a resounding yes on that. And as a matter of fact, I might, I might even up the ante and say in the, in, in the very classic sense of, uh, of the words martial art, uh, skill at arms, including small arms, uh, firearms, skill at arms is more of a martial art than empty-hand combatives. Uh, we're talking about, uh, in history, martial arts, you know, the way, the way a culture or a people or a tribe or uh, somebody, the way somebody uh, wages war and how they go about it, uh, as human beings, uh, wars are, have almost always, always been fought in human history with some kind of mechanical advantage. So, in terms of history, we we got to really look at what what martial art means and the martial arts that we practice. Uh, you know that we go down to the gym or the dojo or the dojang or the kwun and practice are, are in history you know, almost a, a minor footnote as far as uh, skills that win wars and preserve a way of life. So I'd say uh, 
without a doubt, uh, uh, shooting in the most classical sense, there is indeed a martial art. Yeah, I think I found that uh, that definition or that. Uh, you know, when you look at what the purpose of shooting is and how it fits into the spectrum of combatives and history, I, I totally agree with you. I think one of the other things about it is that, you know, the, you and every other firearms instructor that I've met that's been really solid has always emphasized this, you know, fundamentals and then the smooth application of fundamentals on demand as being the advanced skill. And I think that that's got a lot of commonality with how we define good martial arts and how we even train good martial arts. Do you have anything you found as far as, uh, as you're teaching people, any commonalities between the way you train people for empty hand combatives versus the way you train them, say, if they're one of your firearm students? Yes. Matter of fact, there's uh, a lot of overlap, and the students should probably be made more aware of the overlap. I think, um, well, the, yeah, I'll tell you, the, the common thread between the two martial arts, let's say empty-handed skills and small arm skills, the common thread is a uh, repetition and doing things a consistent way so they can be uh, corrected or monitored by an instructor. You know, um, you know in shooting, I, always, I keep barking, I say, you know, uh, do it the same way every time. Consistency is the mother of accuracy. When teaching people to uh, actually hit, hit a target at will, that's something I keep uh, saying to them, and, and uh, the more you do it, the better you get. Same as, uh, if you know, you could be in a boxing gym with bare focus nets. So I, I think the uh, probably the biggest the biggest thing is the, uh, the commonality of the repetitions and the uh, need for consistency. But uh, as far as uh, two as teaching the two things, I like uh, sometimes with when we're teaching Asian martial arts, the uh, mystery and exotic things and terminology and everything that come from these other cultures are are kind of distracting and need to more or less be translated. Whereas in shooting, it's easier to explain what is going on and how a person interacts with a small arm in terms of science and uh, Western students, uh, Americans, in, in our case, generally, uh, are very receptive to having something explained to them scientifically. Whereas in the Asian martial arts, sometimes there's a, a little bit of mysticism there, that, and uh, it's, it's kind of, it can be distracting. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. I think one of the other things uh, that you and I talk about almost all the time is we talk about if we break down firearm skills, that the idea of uh, the application environment, the CQB skills, the footwork um, these are the things that kind of take you beyond the flat range. And so dynamic movement, I think, is an important part of the way both you and I train and teach martial arts. You know, maybe dynamic movement sometimes lacking in traditional empty hand martial arts trainings in the dojo. And I think it's sometimes lacking in the way people train firearms 
as well, just because of the way ranges are constructed and some of the things you can and can't do on the ranges. Have you found that to be uh, the case at all? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, that's absolutely true. It's kind of like if, uh, you know, you want to practice heavy takedowns in the dojo and you're in a area that does not have mats. Right. You've got to find a way. you got to find a way to uh, improvise. And uh, firearms training is so unidirectional that uh, sometimes going beyond the square range and doing things on a 360 degree range or a 180, whatever, is a big wake up call uh, or a, a big. Um, it's a big deal for somebody that hasn't done it. Because they they are they have this uh, 360 degree awareness that they didn't have possibly before. Yeah, I remember uh, um, I was assisting you with teaching a class for the WCPOA, and you were teaching a number of of movement drills that really took uh, seasoned law enforcement veterans, you know, out of their comfort zone in terms of maybe the way they had trained before or thought about a range before and, uh, you know, engaging targets by uh, pivoting and changing levels. I thought that was a really great job you did, you know, uh, teaching that. I think a lot of people got a lot out of that. Do you think that there's a place for, uh, or what do you think the place for dry fire training is uh, in firearms in general, but like say movement specifically? Well, the... uh some of the, some of the shooting positions that utilize if, if you're looking at shooting strictly as a martial art and not you know practicing it for its own right or target shooting or uh, even hunting you're going to be either a moving target or a small target that is to say you're going to exploit available objects to shoot around, over, under, or through. And uh, the class you're referring to, we were doing vehicles. And some of the positions that these people were assuming, some of the ones that were hardest for them, are uh, ones that require some degree of flexibility. And you'll notice that there is something uh, where if we're teaching martial artists, they have this added measure of flexibility, presumably, if they've done it for any, any length of time, uh, so they can get themselves lower to the ground. Uh, they can get up off of the ground or into a shooting position a lot more comfortably and quickly. So uh, there's some value to that when you're uh, pretty much uh, either shooting while you're moving or shooting around an object. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because, uh, you know, that reminds me of uh, another thing that you and I talk about often, which is, you know, in, say, traditional martial arts, there's a, a, a reluctance for people to place physical fitness in, in kind of its proper place. And definitely within the shooting community, firearms uh, students, um, you see a lot of firearms students. Uh, on ranges that are, uh, you know, could clearly use some more time at the gym or some better control on their diet. And if you're looking at it as a martial art, 
I mean, uh, being in better shape as a warrior helps you in empty hand platforms, but it also helps you in firearms platforms. I mean, I, I think you'd agree with that. Oh, there's, yeah, there would be no counter argument to that. In fact, you know, the martial arts, if you're looking at picking up an empty hand uh, or, uh, you know, contact distance martial art, the, you can do a, you can do a version of a martial art where you can do a martial art that is more or less have a cultural experience where you know you, you you learn the terms and different strategies and everything but the the actual movements and everything are pretty far removed from from actual combat they're more like inspired by combat but they're not combatives per se and the second kind of martial art is what I would call a martial sport. Now this is one, this is one that emphasizes athleticism, for sure. You look at the general level of fitness in a, in a boxer or a judo champion, a wrestling champion, uh, an MMA guy, uh, you know, this is one where the athleticism is really, uh, really, really a priority and not not just a byproduct of your training. And probably the third kind, and the kind that interests me the most, is we're basically a martial art for fighting. In other words, the, uh, the reason for practicing is to make yourself harder to kill and better able to cope with people trying to do you harm and manage conflict. So uh, athleticism plays into that. Remember that the better shape you are in, the longer you will be able to do this. I'm, uh, I'm going to be 61 this summer, and I am still enjoying games that I did, that I made you know, as a teenager and in my 20s. Right, and I think for people who who aren't familiar with you or the Four Corners region, and maybe aren't following you on Facebook, they don't get to see. You know, I mean, you mentioned that you're going to be 61, but you're out there doing bucket list hikes every day, adventures that people would, you know, pay lots of money to have a guide take them on, and those things are very physically demanding. Um, and I think that uh, the shape that you're in and have, you know, have been in and have kept yourself in has allowed you to train longer and at more intense levels. The results for anybody who's ever trained with you are obviously very self-evident. Well, it's um, the way I explain this, you know, and uh, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't need explanation in the dojo when you see people rolling or sparring. Uh, doing that, and they, they got their hands on their knees, and they're doubled over, um, fighting back Pukey the Clown. Uh, that doesn't, you know, the, and remember, we trained at altitude, too, but uh, Anagama Dojo was at uh, 8,000 feet altitude, so even, uh, I mean, it was really, uh, really, really demanding. And so, yeah, in other words, the, uh, the athleticism in an unarmed martial art is much more obvious because uh, you are making your body do the work. You're not exploiting a mechanical advantage. But when we go to when we go to uh, the shooting range and get a guy that is uh, you know you get a student that is 
so overweight, they can't even get behind an object to exploit it for cover. Uh, that's you. That, uh, I say, look, this is a track and field event with a pistol or a rifle, as it were. But uh, you can't even get uh, into the position. And uh, one time I had a student uh, basically use an, an M, uh, AR-15 as a almost like a walking stick to help her get up. She was so exhausted and overweight. And, uh, you know, we did exercise freeze and she got called out big time for that. So there is a, uh, there is a measure because of uh, physical fitness that's got to be acknowledged on the range or uh, you're not even going to be able to, uh, you're going to reach a plateau and just not be able to get, beyond it yeah absolutely and maybe maybe in a future episode we can talk about you know things that people who are might be in that category can do to improve their fitness but one of the things you know i wanted to touch on here you mentioned that you know some people do martial arts for cultural experience and you know i might even think that one of the reasons in the firearms culture we see so many people that don't acknowledge physical fitness as a part of uh, firearms as they see firearms kind of uh, as a standalone category in a vacuum as opposed to a spectrum of combatives, you know, where firearms are a tool on the spectrum. And, you know, when you see it in its own category, it almost becomes its own culture. And there's a, you know, a culture of collection and, you know, uh, what gadgets you can put on your gun. And, you know, that becomes kind of the focus of it as opposed to a utility and I don't know if you've uh, have one, if you've had experience training people uh, like that, and two, if you have, you know, kind of a, uh, any advice for people that might be in that category uh, as to you know how to how to reframe the way they see their training. Well, I would say if you uh, got a basic holster, a uh, a firearm that is uh, 100% or real close to 100% reliable using quality ammunition. I would say it, it, it's tough to, uh, if you have a, you know, a basic means like a holster or a carry strap, uh, a, a light, and uh, remember most firearms out of the box will are more accurate than the person can shoot them. That, um, but if you can access all the controls, the firearm's a good fit. I would say before you buy any widget to uh, fasten onto a firearm, to invest that money in practice ammo, burn through that case or two of ammo, and see if you still feel the widget uh, or a modification is necessary. So I, I would I would vet. I would vet, uh, if you're looking at an accessory, i.e. widget, you know, go through a couple cases of ammo with that weapon, um, presumably under the auspices of, a, of an instructor, and uh, come out of that come out of that class when that ammo is gone and ask yourself, uh, do I still need that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we found pretty successful up here is that uh, in our firearms combatives program, we 
work on, well, we, we acknowledge that most civilian firearms encounters will probably begin at, uh, at close contact range. It'll be, you know, somebody approaching them, somebody trying to physically control them. You know, there's kind of that idea statistically that most uh, firearms encounters take place at seven to 10 yards. But a lot of that data is a little is skewed because a lot of that data comes from law enforcement. And as law enforcement officers, we are responding to incidents that are in progress or things like that, whereas a, a civilian encounter uh, might not start that same way. And so there might be that transition from a physical attack to uh, having to, you know, fend somebody off to create space, uh, possibly get your weapon in play or possibly have to defend your weapon. And so what we noticed is that, you know, a lot of people who came in with a lot of competitive shooting backgrounds, you know, had never really put themselves in that context and all of a sudden found that, you know, that one, there were some skill sets lacking, but two, there were some basic attributes in terms of physicality, agility, um, mindset that they had to develop. And uh, so we've been pretty proud of that program and, and pretty happy with how it's progressing. You know, do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, programs like that that are kind of uh, running uh, a junction between uh, empty hand combatives and firearms? Right, absolutely. That that gets into what we talk about with the uh, repetitions and the myelination of neural pathways. Exactly, exactly. So the, what you're trying to build you know, is that that little that little pathway. You want that to go from a from a hunting trail to a super highway due to being traveled so frequently. <laughs> so it's a uh, uh, that's one thing that I. Uh, but I don't. I, I try to. Uh, now, if we're doing static shooting training, right? If we're doing static shooting training, the uh, I explain. Look, the uh, we're taking the legs right now. Your perfect shooting stance. Uh, I just want you to feel what it feels like to uh, have your balance and use your body weight to manage your recoil. But we're eventually going to go to where you're either shooting on the move or you're shooting around or through something. So uh, that's, I don't want them to frame shooting as a static skill set. Uh, we're eventually going to go dynamic. So much like when I was in Chinese martial arts and we did everything from the horse stance, we weren't expected to fight from the horse stance. We just wanted to experience the horse stance and take the footwork out of the equation while we worked on what our fists and wrists and elbows and shoulders were doing. So I say make, uh, make absolutely sure that uh, they have a, that a shooter has body awareness 
where his weight is, how his legs are bent, where his shoulders are set, how he brings a weapon up to his line of sight instead of crouching down to see it, uh, which way he would move if he had to get off the X. Uh, a static shooter, even on a square range, should have a, should have a level of body awareness, uh, just like you know, my first month of uh, Okinawan karate in the dojo. You know, one of the other things I think that recent technology, I mean, not that recent, but recent technology in firearms has really made available to us is, you know, we're talking about the dojo or a gym, um, someplace where you can put techniques and skills into context with a training partner, either through uh, technical training or rolling or sparring. And I think the advent of simunitions has really provided a great way to do force on force training with firearms and uh, you know we're pretty lucky up here to um, you know have a pretty good uh, set of simunitions kit and be able to provide that for our students we don't do it we don't do it that often uh, we do you know, we run our uh, force on force module about four times a year up here but it's it's always very well received and uh, very eye-opening um, for uh, for our students. You, have you done much teaching with simunitions? Yeah, we use the UTMs. Uh, I don't have... Uh, I go to agencies or will uh, train with agencies that have that stuff, in which case uh, the answer is a yes. Uh, short of that, a live-fire shoot house... Uh, is about as good as it gets, but I don't. Uh, uh, I don't currently have the uh, uh, the Sims guns and the bolt carrier groups that I know you have. Well, you can use ours for any classes you're teaching, of course, Dan. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of the time, when I, if I'm teaching a group big enough to benefit from that training, uh, it's an agency or an outfit that has their own. You know, um, thank you. <laughs> I, I think it's. Uh, I think we've definitely hit on some of the core points on, you know, the martial art of shooting and the factors that make it a martial art, and then the procedures or the pathway for training that that are very similar to, uh, you know, all combatives training. Um, you know, given the current uh, coronavirus pandemic and the impact it's had on people's training routines. Out here, uh, most of the ranges are closed, as so, as so are dojos and gyms. People are, uh, you know, outside their uh, training routines. Do you have any advice uh, as a person who's basically had to, uh, you know, out in the Four Corners region, create a lot of his own training routines that you can give to people who are maybe looking for a way to train right now, but, you know, they're just not really sure what to do? Oh, sure. It's, um, uh, yeah, when you're, um, I live in a rural ranching community with three people per square mile in a county uh, you know, half the size of Delaware. So, oh yeah, yeah, a lot of the training that I do for skill maintenance is, in fact, uh, solo, pretty isolated. So to answer your question, okay, if you're, if you're doing a martial art 
uh, empty-handed martial arts, you know, like uh, judo or wrestling or BJJ or something. And you, this is the one that's tough because it's so contingent on rolling around and having um, an okay to to practice with. What I would say to you is uh, uh, work on your flexibility. That's something uh, you're going to benefit from when you go back. And you're probably already working on resistance training and uh, cardio. But if uh, uh, working on your flexibility is something, that's an attribute that will pretty much in life determine how long you're going to be able to do your craft and keep you injury resistant. But it's time consuming. So when we, we go to the dojo or the gym or what have you, it's very time consuming and everybody, everybody wants uh, new material to wrap their mind around. So it's, uh, it's, it's something that's often, often you know, not neglected, but uh, maybe a little overlooked. So if you're, you know, if you're doing striking, uh, heavy bag work, heavy bag work and cardio are the uh, things I do for striking. And in addition for uh, weapon-oriented arts, I take my bob. Um, many out there know what it is, but it's a, it's, it's basically a, a plasticine, resilient, rubberized uh, body figure that's on a water-filled base to give it some weight. And what I do for my striking arts is take uh, the bob, and I have a bunch of old trailer tires that go over the base so I can hit the resulting post formed from hard rubber tires with uh, sticks or hatchets, what have you. So if, uh, if you're doing striking, I say your, you know, your heavy bag work, because your heavy bag work, uh, you know, there's an element of cardio there. You get your timer going and kind of use that to uh, measure, but um, you want to um, you want to build your bone density. You want to, uh, if you're doing a heavy bag and the bag is moving a little bit and you're not spot on, you're going to feel it in your hand or your wrist. You want to make sure that if you do a striking art, you do not strike in a way so as to injure your hands because uh, whatever you're doing, whatever situation you're involved with, could escalate to where you have to manipulate a weapon. You don't want an injured hand for that. So that's what uh, that's what I've been doing, including uh, some cardio, like uh, running with a rifle in my hand, or uh, like this morning I was uh, running with a kokri and striking the uh, uh, the bob target with a kokri as I pass it. <laughs> then looping around, hitting it again, and uh, running back down the driveway. And that's why we refer to you as the most interesting man in the world. Again, can you can you tell the listeners a little bit about Blue Badger? We've referred to it a couple times, and uh, you know people might not know what that is. It's a Blue Badger LLC was a little a little project I started uh, that helped me with uh, contracting uh, uh, down here in this. In this neck of the woods, there's, it's very sparsely populated, and there's very few 
law enforcement officers, and even fewer still that have the resume I have for uh, small arms qualification and state and federal and private um, certifications to teach. So the uh, what I what my bread and butter was for a number of years was uh, uh, contracting out to do qualification and training shoots for small departments that had a high turnover or a small budget that uh, where they could not uh, create their own uh, firearms instructor. It's a very, it could be a very uh, expensive resume to amass. So Blue Badger was uh, kind of doing that, and I've gotten the shoulder tap from, I, I've actually contracted for about four different companies because of a resume I was able to build through uh, agencies that work for that were very proactive on uh, training, and uh, a lot of these I set up and even paid for out of pocket. So Blue Badger was kind of all about that, as well as an umbrella to include uh, Anagama Dojo uh, under the same umbrella. And uh, I did a, uh, you know, it's an LLC, uh, you know, basically for legal reasons. Sure. Does Blue Badger train civilians? Do you have civilian students also? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They usually uh, come in from the martial arts side and want to learn shooting, whereas the, uh, the military and police candidates are shooters that want to learn uh, weapon retention or empty hand skills. Yep. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. If they're, if they're uh, good, uh, good people and they're uh, and we train them up and I can train them safely, uh, I've certainly done that. Uh, I had a lot of clients from, uh, I was on the, on the staff at Valhalla Shooting, uh, uh, Valhalla Shooting uh, Training Center uh, that was a, a very elite kind of a destination shooting thing with a 16,000 square foot shoot house. And I helped, uh, helped teach up there from time to time, especially when law enforcement was involved. And a lot of uh, civilians, uh, could afford that experience came there and uh, got to train them too. So if people want to get a hold of you or get in touch with you or talk to you, um, should they reach out through Blue Badger? And how would they do that? I, yes, I think that, that's Blue Badger has a Facebook page and I found that's better than a website or anything else, uh, especially in an area uh, this remote where I can't count some of the other forms of uh, communication are periodically down or delayed, but uh, for whatever reason, Facebook seems to be up. And look for uh, Blue Badgers, just like it sounds, LLC, and put in a request there. Maybe footnote it with uh, the word podcast or something, and I'll bring you aboard and see what see what we're doing and what we're about. Because yeah, it's, it's, we're having a lot of fun on there. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it, and hopefully uh, you'll be willing to come back and talk to us again in the future. Absolutely. I'm, uh, you know, I have an opinion on just about everything, but that's, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess uh, one of the 
things about getting old. <laughs> well, I think if, uh, if if you're the paradigm for old, I think uh, a bunch of us uh, can't wait to get there. Take care. Okay, thanks for thanks for being here today. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll shine a light on the path. All right. Thanks, Dan. Take care. We'll leave the light on for you. <laughs>